This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I am your host, Philip Nice, and this week is Coronation Week. The flags of the realms are standing and waiting. The orb, the staff, the scepters, the sovereign's ring, the spurs, the sword of state, of mercy, of justice are cleaned and prepared. The vestments, the tunics, the robes, the glove, the girdle, the mantle, and the crown. Representatives of His Majesty's realms are preparing for their roles. The Archdeacon, the Archbishop, the Dean, the King's Champion, the Lord High Constable, Marquesses and Dukes and Earls and Baronesses and Dames, Generals, Admirals, Governors General, and Prime Ministers and other officers. They are learning and practicing their ceremonial processions. And Westminster Abbey is preparing for the Church of England religious service that is the Royal Coronation of King Charles III. We Americans and many peoples around the world with British heritage and without British heritage have been fascinated by the coronation of British monarchs. But this one is bittersweet. Here at Trumpet Hour, we will be watching coverage of it closely for the same reason as many of our listeners and for a very unique reason that we will address at the end of today's program. It's an extremely specific, extremely unique explanation of what it is that you are about to see in Westminster, London. So, in close view of the coronation on Saturday, May 6th, anticipating what we know will happen in the ceremonies of that day, and perhaps a surprise or two, we don't know, Uh, but we are devoting today's entire Trumpet Hour program to the realm that the British monarch rules. We are reviving for the next 50 minutes or so the history of Britain, including the British Empire. So if every panel and every blazon and every crest and every piece of regalia and every inscription and every motto and every color of every piece of fabric that you're going to see in that coronation evokes something from the realm of that king, what was that realm and what is it today? Today we are focusing the entire program on Britain. I am joined in the studio here by the Trumpet.com staff writer Andrew Miller. Hello. And we are connected by video conference to the Trumpet.com author Abraham Blondeau in Ontario, Canada. Good day. What we want to do is take you through the whirl of British history from the very earliest times up to the current coronation. So, Andrew Miller, let's start with you. Take us from the early mists of the British Isles to the establishment of the British Empire in the 1500s, quick as you can. All right, I'll try to do it as quick as I can. This is, <laughs> it's about 2,000 years of history right there, so that's a, a tall order. But because, uh, yeah, Britain, it, it has an amazing history. And I mean, you go all the way back into the, as you phrase it, the mist of time. Uh, you've got monuments like Lagrange, La Creux, Stonehenge. Um, you've probably heard of that one that are as old as the pyramids, probably, if not older. And so uh, it's been around for <laughs> many thousands of years. But the first reference we get to the British Isles from outside of the British Isles uh, comes from uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, about 430 BC, uh, where he writes about the Cassiterides, um, which means the Tin Islands. 
And so in the ancient world, Britain was known uh, for its tin mines. And it's those tin mines that brought Britain into contact with ancient Israel. Um, you had uh, many uh, merchants and travelers from, from Israel and neighboring Phoenicia uh, bringing tin from Britain back to the, the ancient world. Um, there's a reference in uh, Obadiah 120 to uh, exiles from Jerusalem and the land of Sepharad, which is an ancient Jewish name for Spain. Um, and so that's that's one of the proofs you can use um, when you read the United States and Britain in Prophecy, uh, a book we offer for free that uh, Jeremiah had actually taken the daughter of the last king of Judah, uh, went through Egypt to Sepharad, and then married her to the sons of one of those kings up there in the the British Isles, uh, bringing the coronation stone that's going to be used in this uh, upcoming coronation with him. And so like overturning that throne. And so from about 569 BC, uh, you actually had Israelite kings ruling, uh, ruling some of these Celtic countries in Britain. And uh, we don't know much more about the culture till, uh, till Julius Caesar shows up. Uh, he actually um, introduced a, a third ethnic group to Britain uh, in that when he was conquering Gaul, a lot of the Belgians uh, fled across the channel. And so that you had like Belgian speaking Celts in England, uh, Britain speaking Celts in Wales and Scotland, and then Gaelic speaking Celts in Ireland. So different dialects, but all pretty similar. Uh, and started kind of dividing the island <laughs> into the basic groups we know today. Uh, those south of Hadrian's Wall were Romanized Britons and Belgians who kind of formed the core of what would become English and England and Wales later. Uh, north of Hadrian's Wall, you had the, the Picts, which were kind of the foundation for the, the Scottish people. And then across the Irish Channel, you had the, the Celtic Irish. Uh, yeah, and Rome, I mean, completely revolutionized British culture, British law, stayed around for almost 400 years uh, until, um, until, like America today, uh, financial problems started causing uh, the Roman military to evacuate those further outposts. Uh, leaving Britain uh, undefended. And so uh, you started getting uh, the Irish raiding, raiding um, Britain proper from the west and the Picts raiding it from the north. And so um, some, of the, some of the chieftains over there, uh, one of them was a son-in-law of a Roman emperor, actually, uh, invited um, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes <laughs> Uh, to come over there as mercenaries, work for him, defend him from the Picts. Um, then I think when the the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes got there, they looked around and they figured out that England's a not nicer place to grow stuff than Scotland. So I was like, oh, forget fighting these Picts. We're just going to take the land here. Uh, and so that's why you start getting um, <laughs> a, a much bigger cultural divide between England, Scotland, and Ireland because you've got the Welsh, the Scottish... Uh, and the Irish, who are descended from the original Celtic settlers of Britain. And then the English um, would still have quite a bit of Celtic blood, uh, genetically speaking, but like, um, but have more of that Germanic uh, language, Germanic culture, um, the, uh, the remnants from those Angles and Saxons who came over there. And so now you've definitely got three, <laughs> uh, three good-sized groups of people. And uh, 
in the wars that came originally england was divided amongst seven uh kingdoms they call it the heptarchy uh when the Danes started coming over, um, about maybe 900, almost 900 AD, uh, under Alfred the Great and his successors, the English kind of st- uh, started to congel together until the, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes, they, they formed Angleland, named for the Angles, Angleland, uh, and had just one, one kingdom there in what we know England today, which went on to... Um, conquer Wales in subsequent centuries uh, and unite with uh, Scotland uh, and then unite with <laughs> with Ireland later on. I guess we're getting a, a little ahead of the story there. They had another big cultural revolution in 1066 um, when the, uh, the Normans came over from France. Now, there was only about William the Conqueror conquered maybe 20 million Anglo-Saxons with 8,000 Norman knights, so genetically you can barely tell that invasion happened, uh, but linguistically and culturally, it's the reason why almost every English word has a German and a French equivalent. Uh, the people who raised the animal called them cows, which is Anglo-Saxon. The people who ate the animals called them beef, which is French. Uh, but while all this was happening, um, uh, some of the Irish, uh, actually, we have to back up a little bit here, <laughs> back to about 500 A.D., AD uh, only about a century after Rome left. The Irish started to colonize Scotland, um, and uh, under a king named Fergus the Great, brought that stone that Jeremiah had transplanted to Ireland uh, into Scotland uh, to a little kingdom on the western seaboard called Deloradia. Uh, it's named after its founder, Radia. Uh, and then uh, that stone there, uh, just like the seven kingdoms of England conjoined into one kingdom, that country with the stone that uh, ended up uniting the Picts under their rule and uh, just cementing Scotland as one kingdom. Uh, and then in later years during the Scottish Wars for Independent King Edward the I uh, uh, took that stone back to Westminster Abbey uh, and put it in a chair of special significance to the Anglo-Saxons. And so it was kind of, I think the idea was as if the chair was from the Anglo-Saxons and the stone was from the Celts, <laughs> then the stone in the chair was like the ultimate symbol of the king of the British Isles. Uh, and so since uh, since that day, um, well, there were some further, uh, <laughs> some further wars with Scotland and Ireland, but it pretty much had set the... Uh, the entire British Isles just on the path to be one uh, united kingdom. That's actually even the phrase they call it today since uh, since 1707. They've called uh, the United Kingdom uh, because there's more than one kingdom involved. Scotland was a kingdom. Ireland was a kingdom. Uh, England was a kingdom. And, uh, and then once you've ruled the entirety of your British Isles, that really set the base uh, in the Elizabethan era under Queen Elizabeth I to actually start uh, you, you didn't have to fight wars between the Scottish and the English and the Irish anymore. You could actually start focusing outward uh, and establishing colonies in other places. The United Kingdom. So Britain today, shaped by England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, obviously, and going back to, as you said, the Normans and the Angles and Saxons, the Danes, Picts, Jutes, 
Celts and going way back to the prophet Jeremiah that you that you mentioned there and that stone that particular stone you can track a lot by tracking that stone and we'll talk about that uh, later in the program but uh, Abraham Blondeau what else constituted the rise of Britain yeah Andrew did a great job uh, that's a, a very impressive uh, <laughs> scope of history he just covered there um, uh, and, and along the way I think the important point to make is throughout all the internal wars and different migrations of people into Britain, into the, the island itself, you had a, a very slow uh, buildup of institutions that prepared Britain um, for a larger destiny, looking in hindsight. And so um, you had Alfred the Great, which Andrew mentioned, he started the English common law. So what we use as common law uh, in the uh, English-speaking world, that those traditions started under Alfred the Great, and then that continued um, throughout the centuries. Uh, and then probably the as we move through the, the Norman conquest to the Plantagenet dynasty, um, in 1215 you have the Magna Carta, which is basically the most, well, Maybe I'm talking to two Americans, so they might dispute me on this. <laughs> but the most important uh, document in the history of uh, democracy, because it, it is the um, it is a foundation of a king uh, being subject to law. So instead of the idea of an individual, an individual's word being law, that the law reigns supreme in the land, no matter what kind of government, no matter who is in charge. So that was a seminal moment um, that kind of that shaped the rest of history after that, um, because they kept building on those principles. Um, and as you get down to Edward the um, First, as Andrew pointed out, bringing the stone of Scone, the stone of destiny, into England, that was a symbol that helped unite the British Isles. But he also um, he also started the model of Parliament, which is. Um, basically what our modern parliamentary system is based off of. Um, it had developed throughout the time, throughout the ages, but really started under Edward I. So you have, um, it's interesting, and, and after 1296 there, you have the establishment of the monarchy as a symbol of unity, and then you also have an institution that unified all the people together in the model parliament. Um, so these institutions kept being built. Uh, I would say the next major uh, development was the English language. Um, you have, which is which is a pretty incredible uh, thing to study into because you have all these different peoples migrated, uh, as Andrew pointed out. You have at least a dozen different cultures come into England. Um, but by the time of Elizabeth I, you have a, a pretty united language. And then you and that, that gives birth to um, unity of purpose. It gives birth to um, a, an education that allows the nation to move forward in technology, in governance, in law. Uh, so as we look back in the past, you see these institutions emerging, like the English language, Magna Carta, uh, Parliament. Um, all these things build to the point where where the British Isles are able to start expanding outward um, and they have their own definitive culture separate from Europe, 
which is important because as we as we'll get to the history later, there's always that there's a very definitive difference between Europe and, and and Britain between the thinking between the the culture, and so when that breaking point came, with really Edward the Eighth when they broke away from the Catholic Church, and and England became its own um, separate nation, separate vision, separate religious institutions. That's really where you see uh, Britain starting to take a more assertive role on the world stage. So out of the mists of antiquity, we come from the arrival of one man bringing one curious stone through the establishment of, think about this, a monarchy for unity, a strong monarchy, as you mentioned there, Mr. Blondo, the establishment of common law, the the Magna Carta, which, as you said, for the first time established uh, on, on, on a contractual basis, the law uh, ruling above the, the will of the king, the development of the parliament, uh, the separation of uh, Christianity and the Bible from the Vatican and Rome. And again, through all of this, you still have that stone. You still have these coronations and, and this particular stone. What would all this mean for the British and for the world? Well, that's what we'll look at next. I'm Philip Nice, and this is Trumpet Hour. Andrew Miller, thanks for joining us. And we'll continue with Abraham Blondeau on the rise and the peak of the British Empire here in just a few moments and discuss the coronation. Coronations, in fact. Stay with us. Well, thank you indeed for staying with us, Trumpet Hour listeners. I'm your host, Philip Nice, with Abraham Blondeau, staff writer for the Philadelphia Trumpet and for thetrumpet.com. The world of world-changing, world-defining history that is the history of Britain continues as we begin to focus in on the peak of that empire. Mr. Blondeau, take it away for us, if you will. Yeah, so everything we've been talking about so far, we're coming to the, the, the climax of this moment where everything in Britain started to uh, expand, started to look outwards. Uh, and I want to focus in on the year 1761. So we, we leave the Elizabethan period away from the wars between Protestant England and Catholic Europe. And they war for uh, several hundred years uh, until we get to the 1700s where you have um, uh, a united uh, Great Britain, and they're starting to have overseas possessions. And, and this is what we call the first British Empire. This included the United States, um, North America, some some um, islands in the Pacific. It's, it's um, the first iteration of the British Empire. Uh, and so in 1761, we come to the coronation of George III. And so this coronation ceremony really was the seminal moment for the first British Empire, because we've discussed King Alfred, Edward I, Edward VIII, all these kings 
had very significant um, contributions to developing a coronation ceremony separate from the Catholic Church, but based on the Bible. And so um, I just have a quote here from uh, Holger Hook. He wrote a book called Empires of the Imagination, and this really sums together uh, what's, what this coronation was about. He says, quote, Empire building required not only economic and military prowess, but also intellectual and imaginative effort. For Britons to imagine and justify their national and imperial enterprise and to explain their national values to themselves and to others. End quote. So this this coronation of George the Third in seventeen sixty one, this was when the British nation for the first time really imagined themselves as a great imperial power. And it, and it was manifested through the actual coronation ceremony itself. Uh, this was the first uh, ceremony that where the handles Zadok the priest was used. King George had him uh, write it for the coronation anthem. And in fact, the lyrics of uh, Zadok the priest had been used for coronations in England since 973 AD. So hundreds of years. But now it was set to this masterpiece that really inspired and lit people's imaginations and so all the uh, the tapestry the the pomp and ceremony of this coronation in 1761 it really helped britain imagine themselves as a great power as a imperial power and it helped show the world their their values what the british empire was all about and it was about an empire with this with this stone of destiny based in antiquity. It was uh, an empire uh, connected to the Bible. Uh, it was an empire with a monarchy, but also a parliament where the rule of law was supreme. But it was also a nation of um, education. And so you have all these themes wrapped up in this coronation in 1761. And that really set the stage for the British Empire to go to its peak later. It really set the nation's imagination on fire. And in the uh, between 1761 and really 1815, uh, when they defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, you had Britain go from um, a middle power in Europe to the world's greatest empire. So 1761, the coronation of George III, the first British Empire, what a a spark is ignited at this point. An empire connected to the Bible, as you said, an empire that's united, an empire of education, an empire with a monarchy and a parliament, both under the rule of law as supreme, an empire with this curious stone involved in its coronations, uh, and and uh, this biblical-based Zadok the priest, as you mentioned, uh, and also an empire with an imagination on fire. Then it really starts to break loose, Abraham Blondo. Yeah, absolutely. So you have, you have the low point of the American Revolution, but uh, after that, you have um, William Pitt come on the scene as prime minister, and there begins this long war with France. But in 1805, you have the Battle of Trafalgar, and then 1815, you have the Battle of Waterloo. And as this war is going on, Britain's 
building a coalition with other nations. It's expanding its industry. Um, and then as soon as Napoleon is defeated, you have Britain emerge as really the only great military power. The rest of Europe is fractured. And from that point, you have this brilliant, uh, the brilliant prime ministers of, of William Pitt, the older and the younger. Uh, and that left Britain in supremacy. And after that, you just have really an explosion of British expansion around the world. As these European nations went into a contraction, Britain filled in the, the vacuum around the world. And so the first major spot it really expanded into was India. Now, Britain had been in India uh, before the 1800s, but after Napoleon's defeat, it really, um, the British government got more involved in what was going on in India. Uh, especially in the 1830s, you had um, Lord Dalhousie uh, as governor general, and he was the one who really set the standard and the pattern of British um, imperialism and British colo colonialism. And that today is a politically incorrect word, but let's just listen, see the facts of what he did when he was governor general. Um, so... A lot of the things that they did in India, you have, there were 200 different uh, languages in India, uh, and the British government decided to teach them the English language, um, which brought stability, but also connected India to the rest of the English world. Um, you had a lot of um, different cultural rituals that um, were pretty gruesome, um, such as... Um, Hindu widows um, being buried with their men if they uh, died young or or being set on fire while alive uh, at their man's at their husband's funeral. Uh, you also had infanticide. Um, you also had this custom where uh, travelers would be murdered and robbed uh, to please the god Shiva. and you literally had hundreds and hundreds of murders going on every year throughout the countryside, which made the, the nation a lawless place. And so when the British government moved in the 1830s, and especially in the 1840s, um, they, they got rid of all these um, rituals. And they, they, for the first time, they offered the, the caste system within India um, the principles of equality and freedom. They didn't, get, they didn't ban the caste system outright, but over time, through education um, and through um, building infrastructure, they were able to raise the lower caste into a, a place where they could actually start to have uh, an education, have some prosperity, and start contributing to society as a whole. And so what you have in India, you had um, a nation of 200 kingdoms um, for the first time united into one nation under uh, British rule. Um, and even to this day, those institutions are still there. Um, I've I know people in India. I've I've uh, good friends with some of them, and and they went to schools uh, established by the British Empire. And a lot of those schools are still in the highest standing in the world, even uh, over a hundred years later. But if you take that pattern in India, which took a lot of work over two decades to get to the point where they had telegraph stations, they had railways, irrigation canals which stopped famine, um, all these different things, um, they started taking that pattern around the world so that 
you had that they brought that into different places such as uh, Malaysia, Singapore, the Pacific Islands. And then they also brought that into Africa. Um, and just to backtrack a bit in Africa, uh, one of the most significant contributions they made was the end of the slave trade. So right in 1803, so right when Britain was on the, the precipice of becoming this great world power, they outlawed the slave trade. And in 1833, they had the, the proclamation, the abolition of slavery, which made it illegal in all parts of the British Empire um, to have slaves. And so you had the Royal Navy, so the greatest war-making institution the world had ever known up to that point. You had them waging war against the slave trade. So you, ha you actually had the British government having them go around uh, Africa, around the world, and stopping the slave trade through... Um, especially through stopping piracy, um, stopping the ships that were going to different parts of the world, bringing slaves. And so um, in doing this, uh, Britain started to colonize different parts of Africa. Um, and they, in uh, especially on the West Coast, you have South Africa, and then you have Egypt and the Sudan. Uh, they, As they were stopped the slave trade, as they started to colonize, they brought with them these institutions we've been talking about, set along the pattern that they established in India. So they started building railways that connected Cape Horn to uh, Cairo. They started to uh, educate people um, in the English language, in the ideas of liberty, in uh, self-government. Um, they also brought in uh, principles of hygiene. Um, and they they were able to turn some of these places that have been at for at war for centuries, um, divided into small uh, tribal territories. They were able to unite them politically, and then people are starting to be able to prosper for the first time because there is a unity, and they were able to use their resources um, to prosper. And so that continued all through the 1830s, the 40s, the 50s, all the way up until the 1880s, um, where at that point you had Britain start to be challenged by uh, other European powers. Um, but you really have what emerges in the 1880s is you have this network of continuity around the world of the British Empire, which is incredible. Um, and um, I've been, had the privilege of meeting people from Africa, India, like I mentioned, um, other parts of the world, and they all were taught the same thing in school, no matter where they were. And so what you have emerge um, at the end of the 1800s is a world interconnected through the education and the institutions of the British Empire. And what this allows is for the first time, now you have these nations contributing to world trade. Uh, you, have, uh, you have the culture of these different nations. You have the goods and services of these different nations being shipped around the world. Uh, which allows just uh, a flourishing of education and and it really expanded the vision of the British people. So you have the little flame that was lit in 1761 and by the time we get to 1900 that flame has just gone around the world and now it's brought in uh, into it hundreds of millions of people that are now uh, under the uh, British Empire. An empire with an imagination on fire, indeed. I, I'm an American. 
uh the british were the ones that we uh fought in the revolutionary war that's all they were to me <laughs> uh, in, in my childhood uh history classes it was i was honestly i was an adult when i realized some of the things uh that you are describing right now what the british empire was uh what it that how it went from that spark that flame in seventh in the 1760s that you mentioned to what it became we'll cover that a little bit more here in a little bit but uh just what what a world changing empire that empire was stay with us trumpet hour listeners we'll be right back with abraham blondeau discussing the upcoming coronation and the history of the british empire Welcome back, Trumpet Hour listeners. I'm with Trumpet staff writer Abraham Blondeau, and we are racing up to the climax of the history of Britain as we think ahead to the coronation of Britain's king this weekend. We have a monarchy in place. We have a parliament. We have education, literacy. We have supercharged trade. We have absolute wonders of engineering and industry and infrastructure and transportation we have cleanliness and hygiene. We have freedom, freedom to travel without being attacked, freedom from castes, freedom from slavery, freedom from lifetimes. Think about it, just lifetimes, thousands of people, millions of people, millions of li entire lifetimes worth of subservience and indignity and misery, millions of people being freed largely from that freedom from ritualistic murdering of widows murdering of children freedom from ignorance freedom from poverty all the sailors of the royal navy standing at attention on duty not just against other nations that might threaten uh threaten britain militarily or with trade but on duty against evil really against piracy against slave traders and all of this under the mother of parliaments, all of this under the rule of law, all of this under a king or queen from a certain family line, and all of this with a stone, for some reason, standing by. Now you will find an empire's worth of flaws and injustices in the history of the British Empire. Of course you will. Chief of which might be hiring Hessian soldiers to <laughs> to deny us Americans our our British rights. We just wanted British <laughs> rights. Come on, <laughs> but but you cannot tell me that this was not the greatest empire and yes, the best empire in the history of the world. I am kind of late coming to this realization, but uh, that is just not something that can be argued. It was the greatest, and yes, it was the best. Mr. Blondo, we are right at, in our, our journey through British history, we're leading right up to the peak of the greatest, and yes, the best empire in the history of the world. Yes, we are right at the, the precipice um, of when Britain was the globe-girdling empire that we all know it as today, where you look on the world map and 
every little bit of the world has a little bit of red in it where the, the Union Jack flew. And so the, the peak really came under in the Victorian age under Queen Victoria. Um, and that's where you have really the culmination of, of triumph in British literature, British culture, uh, British imperialism. And so even though she died in, in 1901, uh, right before World War One began, so in 1913, 1914, uh, this is where the empire stood. This, let me give you some some figures here. So there were 412 million people that li lived under the control of the British Empire. So 412 million. That At that time, that was 23% of the world's population. So you had a whole quarter of the globe who had access to British law, British government, uh, British infrastructure, British education, for the most part. And then in, in uh, similarly with a quarter of the population being under British government, you also had about a quarter of the world's land area under British control. So that was uh, around 13 million square miles were under control of the British Empire. And a lot of it covered some of the, um, the most fertile and important regions in the world. What, um, what astounds a lot of historians while looking at a map of the British Empire is that it's spread out everywhere. It's not one large landmass. Is that every uh, little peninsula or different continents, there's a little bit of red or a lot of red on those areas. But that's, as we'll get to this more later, but a key the Britons rise was their control of the sea gates, the strategic areas around the world where world trade uh, flowed through. And so a lot of British colonies um, and possessions revolved around these sea gates. And so you had Britain, this small, tiny island that emerged from um, subjugation uh, under Julius Caesar. Now you had them controlling all the important sea gates around the world, and they were actually exporting freedom, and they were exporting uh, democracy wherever they went. And I really, I think this really summarizes um, the uh, thinking of, of most of the British elites at this time. Um, and that was uh, in 1830, you had Lord Babington Macaulay, Thomas Babington Macaulay. So he's a historian and a politician. Um, a lot of uh, people were, were scared of, of teaching these different peoples uh, British principles because they said, well, like, well, once they realize freedom and self-government, they're going to want to have their own nation. They're not going to want us anymore. And Macaulay simply replied, well, if they want their own government, then we've done our job. That the, the point of colonialism wasn't to rule over people indefinitely. It was to eventually allow them to embrace the principles and the institutions that the British Empire explored around the world. And a lot of that meant to independence and self-government uh, eventually. Um, and so that's a pretty inspiring um, uh, thought. That's a pretty inspiring um, principle that 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 the British Empire really brought to people that um, at the end of the day, they had the chance to finally be independent, have their own nation uh, and, and really chart their own destiny um, as a as a nation free from centuries of, of different uh, barbarism. And so at, right before World War One began, 
that is where the British Empire stood. Um, but a lot of the events in the world uh, started to change the trajectory of the empire. So now we come to an inflection point, as you were just describing there, Abraham Blondeau. This is Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Uh, we're discussing the British Empire, and now we come up to the world wars. But I just want to give you, dear listener, a little bit of the realization that I had, just trying to recap what Mr. Blondo was talking about there. And for me, it came very late to realize what the British Empire was and did. Uh, the February 2022 Trumpet, February 2022, the Go and find that print edition. We did a special cover on that one. It was a special edition. And it was all about the British Empire and reading one article after another after another from the different parts of the British Empire and realizing that so many of these possessions, so many of these uh, colonies of the British Empire, they were, they were proud to be a part of it. They were proud to be a part of something bigger. This wasn't just a sub subjugated peoples. Uh, I mean, you can find uh, there was warfare. There was, I mean, this, this is a human institution. Um, so you can find examples of, of negatives for sure. And there were things that should not have been done so forth. But, uh, but you just look at, for one, just look at what it became. Uh, look at one of those maps with the British empire, always in red ink as, as Mr. Blondo said, and you will just be stunned when you're seeing 13 million square miles, a quarter of the globe, uh, is, is British is, is the part of the British empire, a quarter of the globe. And it's the best parts of the globe. So it's powerful. Uh, 23% of all human beings, every fourth human being alive uh, is under the, the queen uh, or the king. 412 million people. If you ever see, I mentioned this before, but if you ever see a flag atlas, it's amazing. Even if it's a 2023 flag atlas, look at the flags and look how many Union Jacks are on uh, those flags up, up there in the corner. People still... Uh, happy and proud to have some connection back to that that British Empire and it does astound historians how this could happen how it could happen so rapidly uh, and again plenty of self-interest plenty of bad but how can you deny the good to ignore how the British Empire changed the entire trajectory of the world you just have to ignore it or be miseducated on it and tragically that's exactly what a lot of us have been miseducated but if you follow the facts, you cannot deny what the British Empire did. Be and you cannot deny that they did it because of what they believed human beings were and how they should be governed and what rights they should have. Uh, and those rights did not come from the government. The government was recognizing rights that were inherent to human beings. It was because of what they believed from the Bible. Uh, it was because of those institutions, the monarchy, the parliament, the rule of law, that they exported, as you said so well, freedom and democracy. This was a good thing for the world. And I, we just take it for granted. We do not realize how we are living uh, in the heritage of the British Empire. Uh, the entire existence of America and what it has done for the world uh, is was built on the shoulders of of the British Empire. In fact, uh, so this was 
this is a bright spot in world history. It just is. Uh, but now, the world wars, Mr. Blondo. As you said, now we get to the inflection point where uh, this the might and the majesty of the British Empire is put through the inferno of the First World War. And so um, this really represented the first major challenge to British power in over 100 years since Napoleon in, in the early 1800s, where he had um, a, a resurgent Germany really pushing for uh, European hegemony. And, and now they challenge British power um, in Europe and overseas. And they want to disrupt the status quo. Uh, but in terms of, of what this did to the British Empire, um, it was still, it was a pretty amazing display of patriotism. Um, I mean, I'm in Canada uh, right now, but I know um, my ancestors fought for Britain um, under the, the Canadian flag at that time, the Red Ensign in Europe. Uh, when Britain declared war, so did all the dominions and the, the colonies. So you had the largest uh, volunteer army in the world from India volunteer the fight for uh, the British Empire against Germany and against um, the the triple um, axis there in Europe. So you still had a lot of, of unity there. But w what World War One did is it, it really bankrupt, bankrupted the British Empire. Um, the enormous cost financially really started to weaken um, the the uh, financial um, underpinnings of the empire, which was really its strong suit. Britain was the financial hub of the world at the time. Uh, but even more so was the, the cost it had on society. So you had uh, millions of men die uh, during the war. And these were the men who were um, the leaders in society. These are the, I mean, it's it's a very, and it's inspiring in one way, but when you read the history, it's depressing seeing how many brilliant men died for their country during that war. And so this had a, a very negative impact on society, in, in the family, um, in in industry, in political leadership. And this this trend continued in World War II. It was, it was another anvil that the British Empire was being beat upon. Um, where it worsened the, the financial and the, the societal problems. Um, but if we take a look back, um, really a lot of the trouble began even before World War I. Right at the peak in the Victorian age, you had uh, an immoral and decadent lifestyle start to spread through the aristocracy. And this was really epitomized by King Edward VII. Um, he was the son of Queen Victoria, became king. In, in old age, uh, but he was a playboy, um, and uh, a lot of the uh, aristocracy there was just there was rife immorality, uh, affairs, um, a lot of broken families because of that, and so the world wars just really brought that kind of lifestyle to the rest of the British people, and so at the end of World War Two, um, you have an empire that's been hollowed out. Um, financially, uh, morally, um, and just as rapid as Britain's uh, um, rise was, now you have a very rapid collapse start to begin. And uh, really what uh, kind of the, the flag staff moment we use is the Suez Crisis in July 1956, where you had 
Egypt, um, which was was seeking more independence from from Britain, they went and seized the Suez Canal, which was the vital seagate there, controlling a lot of the trade in the region. And uh, Britain, they did go in. They went and um, and seized it back. They went and took it back. But uh, due to pressure from the world, Britain surrendered. They they um, they gave it back to Egypt. They backed down. And that moment of of weakness, where the mighty British Empire then started, it just gave up one of its most prized possessions, one of its key sea gates. That began a, a domino effect on the rest of the world. And very rapidly, the empire started to be deconstructed. Um, just in a matter of 10 years, nearly all of Britain's um, African colonies uh, demanded independence. You had uh, India uh, have independence at that time um, in the following World War II. And so you had this, this uh, the, bits on, the red bits on the map started disappearing. And uh, what emerged from this is what we ha- is the Commonwealth, which is which is in its own right uh, a, a more remarkable institution that a lot of these nations are still a part of. Uh, but you have this empire that that fought in both world wars. Um, it started to shrink. Um, it started to lose its influence on other peoples, um, and a lot of the work that was done started to be undone, as uh, a lot of the institutions that they explored around the world started to erode uh, once British influence and once the British uh, government left. Um, so through the, uh, it's interesting, through the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, so she was coronated in 1952, you have, uh, you have a nation uh, just through the world wars, it's tired, war-weary, it's, it's um, starting to have so- self-doubt and so her coronation was had glimpses of that flame that we talked about in 1761 of this imaginative empire spirit Um, but uh, throughout her reign that that lamp started to to go out that flame started to go out as um and she actually she um enabled the empire to be given away because that's what um the british people wanted too you had just a loss of that imaginative spirit of that empire spirit, um, and just the last point to hit upon upon quickly here was the empire culture was really replaced by uh, a socialist culture. Um, Clement Attlee, the prime minister after Winston Churchill, following World War II in 1945, he he really institutionalized a lot of the socialist type thinking that Britain is uh, has come to epitomize where you have uh, national health care um, and and different programs like that where now the people put their own well-being above um, having a vision of empire and so you had multiple forces at work here but from from the start of World War one for being a globe girdling empire as you go down to um, the 19. 19- uh, 1966, you had the colonial office close uh, down to the 1990s where they, they gave away Hong Kong. Um, all the way to our modern day, you had this this mighty empire just almost evaporate off the world map. Um, and it was 
it was through moral decline uh it was through economic pressure um just a, a lack of leadership um but most of all it was just the empire gave up on itself uh, as the people lost that vision they lost that spark they lost the purpose uh, of what they could do with the institutions they had and that's why the empire um is what it is today it's it's a fact in a history book and we have the commonwealth still but that's kind of the framework that that we enter into into our modern time so very abruptly a lot of work to improve the human condition that was done was undone as you said and you just have to ask yourself what <laughs> why if human beings are rational when something that makes people healthier, makes people wealthier, makes people more enlightened, more educated, comes along. Why would you destroy that? Why would other countries destroy that? Why would uh, the the people living under that system? And why would the British themselves uh, destroy that? It's just, it's confusing. A world suddenly has this good thing, and this is a good thing, and then they give it up without a fight. Uh, in a fit of self-doubt, as you said, and a loss of that empire of imagination. The empire, like you said, gave up on itself. So we've we've talked about these three coronations, George III, the coronation of, of a, a glorious empire uh, leading up to that, that golden age under Queen Victoria, as you said. Then the coronation of Elizabeth II, a, a long reign of decline in in britain uh, the official loss of possessions the official uh, giving up without a fight of the empire and now we come to george the third and as our listeners watch any coverage of this coronation uh this this weekend you are looking at a, a portal into the history that we're talking about every bit of the order of service every patch on every garment of every uniformed man standing way in the background every square foot of westminster abbey evokes this history it's full of symbolism the coronation ceremony the the heraldry of it there's a reason there's a noble something there's a a lifetime or many lifetimes um, or entire family lines going into every part of every coat of arms that you see about the place and we you, it's impossible to know what they all mean uh, and, and it's there all over the surface in gold thread and fine wool and beautiful satin and so forth but it is hollow abraham blondo that's a that's a great summary of what we're watching here because a lot of historians they ask the same question well why did this happen how could this happen and you could read all their books and they'll never tell you the answer and that's because the british empire rose and it fell not because of just physical reasons and it's connected to what we're seeing in these coronations at the heart of each coronation there was the bible and it harkened back to um the, the kings of israel and that's where we need to go back to find the answer here it's in it's in the bible and so the reason why um, this history took place, both the good and the bad. The reason why the empire was such a blessing to the world, why it, it was just astonishingly um, improbable to happen. If anyone was to look at 
the world in 1800, I don't think anyone would have picked Britain to be this globe-girdling empire. Um, but the reason why that happened and the reason for its stunning collapse is because of um, of the Bible, uh, because it was really the God of the Bible behind the empire's rise, and it was the God of the Bible behind the empire's decline. And the reason for that, God was keeping a promise, and it wasn't because of, of the skin color of the British people. It wasn't because they were more righteous, or it wasn't even because of the institutions they had. Those were, um, those were developed to enable them to be a blessing to the world. But the real reason was God was simply keeping a promise to a family. That's why the British Empire happened. God was keeping a promise to the, the patriarch Abraham. And so uh, God unconditionally promised all these major blessings, the sea gates, the power, the, the resources, uh, even being a commonwealth of nations. That was all prophesied to happen. But the Bible says once those promises were given and God kept his promise, it was up to the people to decide if they were going to keep them. And so the empire did give up on itself. It gave up on the imagination. It gave up on the spirit. But what it gave up most of all was the Bible. It gave up on the laws, on the principles of the Bible. It gave up on obedience to God in, in whatever capacity that they understood. And this rejection of God in the Bible, that's really what's on display in the collapse of the British Empire in the collapse of British society, but even in this coronation of King Charles III. That's really what's on display here. And that's it. I think that's that's the that's the uh, the insight you're not going to find anywhere else that he's as you watch um, the coronation happen and you read analysis afterwards, is they're not going to really talk about how this coronation is symbolic of Britain's rejection of, of the Bible. And so King Charles, what he wants to do, he wants to modernize the monarchy. He wants to bring it into the, the century. And so by doing that, he's really turning his back on a lot of these time-honored traditions and institutions that come from the Bible, even the principles behind them. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the major things he's doing is uh, he wants to bring in more religious leaders from other uh, faiths into the ceremony, which was traditionally just for uh, the Anglican Church. And so he's having um, a gift given by the Pope lead the procession of the coronation, which in since Henry VIII rejected the Roman Catholic Church, that's a huge moment that the, the Catholic Church is leading the coronation ceremony symbolically. That's a, that's a big change in, in British history. You're, he's essentially erasing hundreds of years of independence symbolically through doing that. And then you have what well, I found um, here, they're getting rid of the swear of allegiance of the nobles, and they're going to have a, a, a saying an homage to uh, of the people, where people can choose whether they want to say an oath of loyalty to the king or not. They don't want to offend anyone, so now it's it's all uh, it's people's choice whether they want to be loyal to the king or not. I mean, it, you just see this this watered down uh, version of the coronation, and just it's not inspiring. It's not. Um, it doesn't light people's imaginations. It it just reminds you of 
this precipitous decline and that it's hollow. I think that's, that's the perfect word for it. It's a hollow um, coronation because it's hollow of what the Bible stands for. It's hollow of all these traditions that have been built up over thousands of years in Britain that came from the Bible, the king from King, King David and Zadok the priest. And now we see that they're gone. And so it will be int- very interesting to see this coronation that's absent of this, this spirit of, the, of King David, really, for the first time uh, in, a, in a British coronation ceremony. So there's a reason why that spirit of King David is absent. And throughout this program, we've documented how this, this stone, this mysterious stone, has it was with the prophet Jeremiah. In, in the Middle East, in, in, in the nation of Israel anciently. And it tra- traveled uh, to Spain, then to Ireland, and then to Scotland. And then King Edward I brought it to England, and he built the coronation chair around it that you'll see on the weekend if you tune into the coronation. So that stone's been very important to the unity and to invoking this biblical spirit into the coronation. But that stone has changed just as Britain has changed, and its morals have changed, and it's a completely different uh, nation to what it used to be, that stone is different too. And all these reasons why we've been talking about Britain's decline, um, it's really symbolized in the change that happened to this stone. It's really a a really beautiful and uh, uh, symbol of, of... of what's happened in some ways, but it's also a big warning too. And so um, you, it's important to understand how this stone changed and, and, and it has a direct link to why the coronation ceremony is going to be so hollow. And so we have a book on our, on the trumpet.com. You can order it for free. That book is called the new throne of David. And so that book will walk you through this, this change that happened and it's tied to the history of the British empire to the history of the stone, to the monarchy, and it really will go into depth on the spiritual reason um, to explain uh, why everything is changing so much uh, before our eyes. The New Throne of David, that's a book by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. You can find that, as Mr. Blondo said, on thetrumpet.com. Just go to thetrumpet.com slash literature, and you'll find that. A big claim to make, a new stone, a new throne, but it'll, it'll be explained there. You can have a look and prove for yourself uh, whether that coronation ceremony isn't extremely hollow and whether or not that book explains the reason why. Abraham Blondo, you've taken us through British history in an hour or less. You've shown us the significant, the, the significance, excuse me, the unifying thread Abraham Blondeau, you've taken us through the eras of British history. We appreciate you guiding us and showing us that there is a common thread there. There is uh, something to track through the the history of Britain and, and where it's leading to this very weekend with the coronation of King Charles III. We appreciate you being with us and thank you for all your efforts. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show and I really enjoyed being on this journey with the Trumpet Hour listeners today. You will see splendor on Saturday as a new King of England is officially crowned. You will hear church bells, but they will ring hollow.
if nothing else than by virtue of the simple fact of what Britain was and what it is now, it is apparent that there's something wrong with the realm. There's something wrong with the monarchy. There is something wrong with the coronation stone. Some few people recognize what that coronation stone symbolizes. It has been with the British and their ancestors from the very beginning. The reason it was so revered as to be part of the coronation of kings and queens of the greatest empire in history is because it was there from the very, very beginning. It was there not only in the mists of early English or Scottish or even Irish history, and believe it or not, it was there not only with Jeremiah in Ireland or with Jeremiah in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's time, that stone was ancient. It was revered in his time for what it meant and how long it had been with his predecessors. And that is a huge claim to make, and some few people do recognize that the British coronation stone to be used on May 6th 2023 goes back to the original ancestor of the British people. It goes back as previous British generations have recognized through King David, through the ancient Israelites, all the way to their ancestor, Jacob, Jacob's pillar stone, the grandson of the patriarch Abraham himself, him to whom national blessings such as Seagates, such as producing a nation and a company or commonwealth, of nations were promised in the book of Genesis, right there in the Bible that they will presumably be using heavily in the Abbey this Saturday. A huge claim to make. And this program has offered the United States and Britain in Prophecy before by Herbert W. Armstrong for you to look into that history and see what that throne and that stone and that coronation come from. But as Mr. Blondeau mentioned, Trumpet Hour also offers you something else to understand this coronation, the new throne of David. That's at thetrumpet.com slash literature, the new throne of David. Some few people do understand that coronation stone uh, and what it symbolizes from the United States and Britain and prophecy, or even from other historical sources. But nobody out there understands what is in the new throne of David. Again, it has even more what I'd call astonishing claims to make about that throne on which King Charles III is about to be crowned. Compare those claims to the coronation on Saturday, to what happens thereafter. Compare those to the reign of the king and the future of that entire monarchy that has been an unbroken line for so long. That was The New Throne of David by Gerald Flurry, thetrumpet.com slash literature. Get it and compare it to what is happening to the British monarchy. That is your Trumpet Hour, May 3rd, 2023, mere days before the historic and bittersweet royal coronation. We hope you'll write us your observations about the coronation, the monarchy, at letters at thetrumpet.com, letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to Jesse Hester for audio editing and production for this episode. Tune in on Friday for our Trumpet Hour Week in Review for news from Anglo-America and from the four corners of the globe all wrapped up in summary form. And thank you again for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.